First, a health warning. We are going to be involved with blasphemy or heresy. I'm never quite sure of the distinction between them because we are going to suggest that not everything that Jacinta does is absolutely perfect. Okay, okay, I I can feel your seething, but let's have a listen. Um, here at Adelaide, now, we boldly offer a broad range of opinions, no matter how how confronting, so hold on tight. Oliver Hartwich, formerly of Oz and formerly, formerly of Germany, is these days ensconced in New Zealand. And he's the director, the exec director of the New Zealand Initiative, which uh, describes itself as a non-partisan think tank. And we've asked him to give us a stock take of how New Zealand is going with COVID, and we want to talk to him about the forthcoming elections. And uh, he was going to suggest, would you believe that Jacinta is not the equal of Mother Teresa or indeed of... um, of Australia's saint. Uh, Oliver joins us from a Wellington studio. Heavens above a studio. Greetings to you, Oliver. Hello, Philip. Great to be with you again. Would you be kind enough to tell me about your about your think tank? Oh, the New Zealand Initiative is a think tank that I've led now for the past eight years. It is a public policy think tank working on issues ranging from education to foreign direct investment, housing, local government, and we are, as you said, nonpartisan. That is, um, we are talking to both the government and the opposition of the day, and we are there to create better policy ideas for a better New Zealand. How are you funded? We're funded by our members. We've got a membership currently of around 70, 80 companies, mainly companies from a broad uh, range of sectors in New Zealand, so basically uh, from the financial sector, but also from logistics. Um, um, some advisory companies, um, so the broad range of the New Zealand economy altogether representing about a third of New Zealand GDP. Okay, let's talk COVID first. Is New Zealand truly COVID-free? Yes, we are COVID-free, apart from currently about 25 cases in managed isolation that is in quarantine. So travellers who have recently arrived in New Zealand and whose COVID cases have been caught at the border. But Beyond that, of course, um, within New Zealand proper, we are COVID-free. There is no community transmission. There hasn't been for two months. And um, you can lead a very normal life in New Zealand these days. There are no restrictions on public life, quite unlike what I read is happening in Australia these days. New Zealand is pretty much back to normal. So you have achieved eradication? Yes, for the time being. The problem is, of course, that we can't take this for granted. And that's why we have to protect our borders. That's why we have to make sure that the quarantine process really works, is watertight. Um, But as long as we do that, yes, uh, we have eradicated the virus. Now, it sounds pretty good from here, Oliver, and we'd be delighted to have that report card. But uh, you don't say full credit to the government for achieving it. Well... uh, at least you have to add a few more aspects to that. I mean, on the one hand, it is, of course, great. We have got to where we are. This is wonderful. This is achievement, an achievement for the government, but also for the team of five million, as our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern usually talks about um, New Zealanders. We've all done our bit, of course, to make sure we have this outcome right now. But I wouldn't say the government has done everything perfectly in the crisis. And in fact, um, you can now see this in recently released government documents that not everything went well. 
And we can take this back to mid-March. In mid-March, the government realized they didn't know how many ventilators they had in New Zealand hospitals. They didn't know how much contact tracing capacity there was. We found out later it was probably for about 10 cases at the time. And so what happened was actually that the government in around mid-March panicked. They realized that this country simply couldn't deal with an outbreak of COVID. And therefore, they went into one of the strictest lockdowns anywhere found in the world. So basically, for the next couple of months, hardly anything was possible in New Zealand. And so they probably went a little bit overboard with the lockdown. The criterion they used was whether activities were essential, whether you really had to do things, when in fact, a much better criterion probably would have been whether it's safe to do activities because um, they went so strict that the economy really suffered. And now we are in a situation where, thank God, the virus is gone. And yet um, the country's economy is in tatters because we are so dependent on an open border. That doesn't mean that we should just open the border straight away, but we should make sure that we open the border safely because we are so dependent, for example, on international students. It would be nice to bring at least some sort of tourism back into the country because these were really important economies before COVID. Now, you you understand that we'd like to think of Jacinda as being Mary McKillop on steroids, but uh, and you make the point that you have a 1,200-mile moat around you. You've got a much larger degree of isolation from the rest of us. Indeed. Um, I think there were a few factors in New Zealand's favour at the beginning of the crisis. So first of all, this crisis for a long time only happened on our television screens. So we only had the first case of COVID-19 in late February. Um, that was, of course, when other countries already experienced quite large waves of COVID. So we had time to prepare. Then we have a country that is physically the size of, say, Italy or Great Britain. And yet it's only 5 million people on these islands, um, low density population. Even Auckland, our largest city, is actually quite a low density city by international urban standards. So if there was one country on this planet that had a good chance of fighting the virus, it was probably New Zealand. Tell me about the government's plan for a big commemorative service for the uh, Christchurch terrorist attack. Well, that was quite symptomatic, actually, because in early March, both the government and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand downplayed uh, the risk to the economy and to the country from COVID. And they said, look, nothing to worry about here. We've got it all under control. And back then, there were even um, plans to hold a big commemorative event for the first anniversary of the Christchurch terror attack. And it was only cancelled really at the last minute when the government realised that there was a big public health risk and we probably shouldn't go ahead with that. So the government almost had to be pushed into giving up on this um, by public opinion. And that seems to be a big factor, actually, in explaining how the government um, moved in this crisis. Public opinion basically dictated whatever the government did. So public opinion in early mid-March showed the public were more sceptical about our ability to deal with the virus outbreak. And the government followed a few days later by putting us all into lockdown. And then when it came to exiting from the lockdown, it was the reverse. The public signaled to the government quite clearly that they thought they had enough. And then the government followed and relaxed the restrictions a few days later. So I heard, um, I'm relatively sure that it's true that the government has been polling New Zealanders since mid-March on a daily basis 
trying to feel the pulse of the population and seeing how far they can go and what the public expects them to do. And then the government basically follows public opinion, but it never really leads it. I'm not sure that feeling the pulse of the population is the perfect uh, the perfect metaphor to use these days, but uh, okay. And of course, governments everywhere are very anxious to, to be with the public and not behind or ahead, aren't they? That is true. On the other hand, of course, you have to sometimes explain that not every opening of the border does have to mean a risk. Um, so, for example, we had a contribution from our former Prime Minister, Helen Clark, just a couple of weeks ago, together with our former Chief Science Advisor, Sir Peter Gluckman, and the former head of Air New Zealand, Rob Five. And the three of them argued we should actually now move towards safely reopening the border, that is not just opening the border to anyone, but to open the border while keeping um, safeguards in place. Because they argued that we need to revitalize the economy. It's not good enough to just beat the virus. We also have to think about how we can make sure that New Zealand can function economically. Now, let us remind the, the listener that Helen Clark was a mentor of Jacinda, wasn't she? Um, who used to work for her. And she's, so she, in a sense, she's an unlikely critic. That is right. And as far as I can tell, Helen Clark has never before publicly criticised um, the Adern government. So that was quite a significant contribution to the debate. And you could also see it, of course, in Helen Clark's tweets. She um, is an ardent user of uh, Twitter. And you can see that she was getting increasingly frustrated, not just, by the way, with just keeping the border open to, say, st uh, students, but also and in particular with New Zealand's take on the Pacific, because we have some Pacific islands that heavily depend on New Zealand tourism. And Helen Clark argued quite rightly, I think, on Twitter that it is unfair to these countries that have basically no virus problem whatsoever to shut, shut them from New Zealand and basically um, destroy their tourism sector. Now, I, uh, I want to switch to uh, purely political matters. And I want to discuss a referendum, I understand, is heading your way which sounds to me a splendid notion. It's on the legalisation of uh, cannabis and euthanasia. Yes, um, and indeed these are two separate referenda. They will be held at the time of the election on the same day. One of them, the um, euthanasia referendum, is the result of a long campaign of David Seymour, the sole um, MP for the ACT Party. That's a small um, liberal or libertarian party in the New Zealand parliament. And he's been pushing his private members bill through Parliament basically on his own, single-handedly as a sole MP for one party, a minor party. And um, so really all credit um, goes to David Seymour for, for achieving this. This is quite a remarkable achievement. And opinion polls suggest um, that he will be successful in this referendum. The other referendum regards the legalization of cannabis. Uh, there the opinion polls currently suggest that this referendum will not be successful in the legalisation of cannabis. But I think um, we still have about two months to go until the election and the I, referendum. I find, I find so that we'll extraordinary. See. I thought cannabis would sail through and that uh, euthanasia, which I wholeheartedly support and have for decades, would be problematic with, uh, with religious reaction. Well, it seems to be quite the other way around. I think David Seymour has managed to build um, a good case uh, for his referendum and for his campaign. The other side probably hasn't done that. And there is quite a bit of resistance on the legalization of cannabis because um, people are concerned that this might actually lead to further um, problems with other harder drugs um, along the line.
the slippery slope argument. Indeed. But that, uh, that is usually applied to euthanasia as well, the slippery slope. But OK, so two, two separate referenda on the same day as the election. Now let's talk about the political upsets in regard to that very event. Well, um, New Zealand politics, if I may say it like that, on Australian radio is becoming a bit more Australian. You know, I've been in New Zealand now for eight years, and when I arrived here in 2012, um, how can I say this? It was a bit boring, um, certainly in comparison with Australia, because um, not that much happened in New Zealand politics by the standards of Australian politics, where you seem to. Well, in our, in our country, weeks. I'm proud to say that the, the the life of a prime minister is about the same as the shelf life of yogurt. Yes, and I think in New Zealand um, we are moving that way. So we've had quite a few resignations of MPs over the past couple of weeks. We just um, swapped our leader of the opposition twice now in the last uh, three months. And uh, today we had a sacking of a minister for an extramarital affair, so something that doesn't happen every day in New Zealand either. So the last few months... What do you mean months, extramarital affairs <coughs> don't happen in New Zealand or ministers never, aren't never. sacked? No. Um, well, I think the compounding factor here is um, the Prime Minister said it was the Minister for Workplace Relations. There's a certain irony, of course. Um, and he said an, an affair in office for 12 months. And um, we still have to see never what happens, comes out. Never happens in Australia. There is not one case where no, a minister um, has had an affair with a staffer. Well, I can think of there's not I, one. I, I, there's I'm, probably I'm, dozens. I'm sure it would have never happened in New Zealand before either. But tell me about the leader of the uh, putative opposition and that sudden resignation after such a short time in the job. Well, um, we had an, a leader of the opposition for two years, um, basically following on from Serbal uh, English. Um, and after he lost the election, he led the National Party in opposition for the next couple of months. Then he resigned. And the new leader stayed in his uh, position uh, for two years. And had it not been for COVID-19, he probably would have also led his party to the election because um, back in February, March, his party was polling around 45%. Everything seems to be going swimmingly for him. Then the virus happened. And uh, the public, of course, um, in the virus situation, always goes for the government actually leading the Labour Party to up to 59% in the polls, believe it or not. And that was a time when the National Party in opposition panicked. Um, they um, elected a new leader, and that was Todd Muller. But as he found out after only 53 days, he himself thought he wasn't up to the job because he had probably underestimated the pressures of that office. And then unexpectedly, he resigned. And so the party quickly... So there was an, out, an outburst, not of hubris, but of modesty. Well, as he said, and I think we just probably have to take him by his word, he, he had underestimated um, the pressures of office and he felt he wasn't the right person for that job. And I think uh, this is quite unusual for a politician to realise this so soon after taking office and then to say it publicly, um, I think it probably deserves some respect. So the party then had to find a successor and found that successor in Judith Collins, a previous minister from the John Key administration, and uh, she found herself um, straight after taking that job embroiled in another scandal with a junior MP who was found to have um, sent um, explicit uh, messages to uh, young girls. So it's, it's been an 
interesting time in New Zealand politics, to say the least. I must make the observation that New Zealand politics were very boring until you returned there. And uh, I'm not suggesting a direct causal link. But so Jacinda, St Jacinda, I'm sorry, has really no serious opponents uh, for September 19. Well, it looks very likely that we will either end up with a Labour majority government. So in the last opinion poll, Labour was still on 50%. Um, which, um, given some vote will be wasted on minor parties that will not make it to parliament, will be enough for a comfortable parliamentary majority. If um, Labour goes down a little bit uh, before the election, we are likely to see a Labour-Greens coalition. In either case, we will uh, probably see Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister after September 19th. I'm interested in how much the New Zealand government has had to uh, give financial assistance as we have here with the JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Well, the New Zealand government has given quite a, a substantial amount of assistance and rightly so. And in one way, I would probably say they did this better than the Australian government because um, the money f- uh, flowed immediately. So um, right in mid uh, and late March, the government announced that uh, companies could now claim um, a wage subsidy for um, any full-time and part-time employee for any company that expected um, a loss of 30% of revenue. And so immediately $12 billion were paid out. You had to apply for it, and about a couple of days later, you would have found that money in your bank account, whereas in Australia, from what I've been told, that process took a bit longer. So I think the immediate cash flow effect um, was much better for the New Zealand economy and the government did this really well in New Zealand. They extended the scheme um, for a second uh, time now and uh, they will take them right to mid-September. But um, altogether you have to see, of course, that there are some industries which you will not be able to keep afloat um, with a wage subsidy because um, the business model no longer exists. I mean, New Zealand was heavily dependent on international tourism And as long as COVID uh, is present in the world and as long as international travel doesn't exist, um, we will struggle to revive that sector of the economy, no matter how much we subsidise it. And I understand you suspect it's going to take years and years, literally, before our tourism gets back. Yes, from conversations that I've had with um, people in the aviation industry, um, they are all expecting this to last for three to five years until we go back to something resembling normal. Um, We might move a bit earlier with um, individual countries, say um, Taiwan, where they um, don't seem to have a virus problem, or the um, Pacific Islands, or hopefully at some stage Australia with a trans-Tasman bubble. But uh, for the return of normal international tourism, um, that will take quite a while. Okay, now New Zealand, of course, felt the effects of our bushfires uh, last summer with the smoke and uh, airborne detritus drifting overhead. Is climate change an issue in the upcoming election? It's, you know, people are totally distracted from it in Australia by the virus. Probably not as much in the election, but not because it wasn't an issue. I think mainly because the government had um, dealt with it in legislation last year. So late last year, the government introduced the Zero Carbon Act, and basically that dealt with um, climate change by um, um, allowing the Minister for Climate Change to issue five-year carbon budgets. The government then recently um, tightened the emissions trading scheme. So basically, we've got the structure in place now to deal with climate change. And that's, I think, why it won't feature much in the election campaign. I understand the New Zealand's Reserve Bank is printing money quite energetically. 
That is true. The uh, New Zealand Reserve Bank um, has uh, embarked on quantitative easing. So that's a um, new parlance, of course, for just printing money. Currently, up to 60 billion New Zealand dollars will be provided by the Reserve Bank. And um, our banks actually expect this to go up. So when the Reserve Bank meets again next month, um, we might see it go up to 90 billion, maybe 120 billion, which is a substantial amount of money. And of course, there is a risk because um, nobody needs to be invested in New Zealand. So if um, external international investors suspect that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand just wants to help the government inflate its way out of trouble, um, these international investors might actually leave New Zealand. But so there's, puts there's no indication of that yet. You <clears> simply <throat> say it could happen. It could happen. And I think we just have to be careful because New Zealand is starting from a heavily negative net international investment position. That means um, we owe the world more than the world owes us. And that limits the ability of our government to engage in deficit finance, and it limits the ability of the Reserve Bank to engage in quantitative easing. You also make the point that uh, New Zealand's small economy is prone to natural disasters, the Christchurch earthquake, for example, and these are very, very costly, so you perhaps need a buffer. Exactly, and that is actually the thing that keeps me awake at night. That's my nightmare scenario. The government has now um, announced that by 2023, we will see debt to GDP levels go up to about 54%, which doesn't sound much by American standards or European standards, but for a country like New Zealand, this is quite a high level and that wouldn't leave much room for maneuver in case we have another earthquake, which of course in New Zealand being on the ring of fire could always happen. So I think this level is too high and actually Treasury previously suggested that um, New Zealand should rather have debt levels of around 20% because we want to leave a little bit of flexibility for the eventual rebuild after the next natural disaster. Adern has uh, allotted, what, 12 billion New Zealand dollars on infrastructure. Does that get your approval? I think uh, it is clear that New Zealand has some infrastructure needs. Uh, in fact, the opposition last week announced uh, more than $30 billion of extra infrastructure spending. So there's even um, broad party uh, cross-party consensus um, that New Zealand needs to do better on infrastructure. And you just have to look at um, Auckland, for example, the connection between um, the airport and the inner city. Um, it's clear that something needs to be done. The question in New Zealand in the last few years has always been what is the proper mode of trans transport, for example, for the airport link in Auckland. But also I think what needs to happen is we need to have a much better process of defining projects because so far both major parties like to announce big projects and neither party really engages in proper cost-benefit analysis. And I think if you're spending that amount of money, you should have a few million dollars to do a proper case study first be before you decide whether it's actually worth it. Finally, what about immigration, uh, Oliver? Is a drop there going to have a big effect? Yes, because immigration has, for the past few years, always propped up our GDP figures. Um, New Zealand never had spectacular GDP per capita growth, but um, quite respectable GDP growth, and that was driven by migration. Migration has effectively, effectively fallen to zero now in the COVID crisis, so we will definitely feel the impact. But um, at least I'm doing my personal bit for New Zealand. I've just um, lodged my application for New Zealand citizenship. Oliver, thank you for that. It's good to have you back again. Oliver Hartwich, Exec Director of the New Zealand Initiative, which, as you've heard Oliver say, is a non-partisan think tank. See you soon, Oliver. Thank you, Philip. Great to talk to you.